Hello, I'm Angelina. And I'm Martin. And this is the CX Cast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the CX Cast. I'm joined, as always, by my co host, Martin. Hey, Martin. Hello. And I have a cherished colleague on with us today from the CX team. It is VP Principal Analyst David Trogue. Hey, David, welcome back. Hi, Angelina. Hi, Martin. Thank you. Glad to be back. I'm sure you are. And we needed you to come back because generative AI continues to be a hot topic. And you've always been at the forefront of any sort of tools for CX leaders to apply to improve customer experiences or improve how we work in the background to deliver those experiences. So you've done a little bit of research on generative AI and what it means for CX leaders, for customers. And we would love for you to frame up your thoughts for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's been a, definitely a hot topic ever since November 30th of last year when ChatGPT came out. And uh, yeah, it's been the subject of a bunch of reports, uh, lots of uh, interactions with clients. There's just huge interest out there. Anyone can Google generative AI, but I always find that you are very methodical with how you think about definitions and help us sort of frame up the conversation. Oh, thank you for those kind words. Uh, and I think it's useful to try to define it without using jargon and use use plain language that's you know that's precise, but that that doesn't assume you know a bunch of stuff about the underlying technology. And I think you know a useful way to look at it is that generative AI is a set of technologies and techniques for producing content that's similar to existing content using a process where you do what's called training. You take a large volume of existing content that could be text or images or whatever it might be, and you train a model, which means that you create a statistical model of what the patterns are in that content, whether it's a big snapshot of the web or a bunch of images or whatever. And the reason you would look for those patterns is so that you can generate new content based on an input so that you know, a lot of us have tried this going to ChatGPT, for example, and typing in some words that's typically called a prompt it might be a question or it might be the beginning of a paragraph. And then seemingly magically ChatGPT continues on with an answer or, or completes it. And that is essentially an auto completion that's purely statistical. What's amazing about it is that it feels sometimes like it's thinking or like it's reasoning or like it's searching the web. And those are some of the, I think, misconceptions that it's helpful to debunk. None of those things are happening. There is no search. In fact, you could, you could burn the entire corpus, the content that ChatGPT was trained on. You could unplug every website that was scraped for ChatGPT. The web could be completely gone and only ChatGPT left. That would not change its behavior. It would continue answering all these questions. It is not doing any search. When it feels like it's reasoning or like it's inferring and drawing conclusions, no such thing is happening. It is merely generating words that seem to be likely completions of sentences. And that's so hard, I think, for us as humans to grok, and yet that is what is happening, but at sort of a level of complexity and scale and sophistication that it makes it appear to have these things that we think of as human intelligence. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And I think I've got quite a schizophrenic relationship with it at the moment, because mm -hmm. on, on one hand, it's absolute magic. It's this black box voodoo thing that just can talk to me. But on the other hand, it's entirely predictable and it doesn't really do anything that I couldn't have just kind of worked out for myself if I thought about it. Mm -hmm. So what what is the state of the art at the moment in terms of not necessarily looking forward five years in the future because we don't really know where it's going to go, but today, what's possible? How can we actually use it in terms of creating customer experiences? 
Well, that's, so that's a great question. And just to give a little bit of context, well, actually, no, let me give the punchline first and then give the context. The punchline is that right now it is not thoroughly reliable in terms of the factual correctness of what it says, what it asserts. Now, I have to sort of moderate that by saying, well, sometimes it's asserting nothing. For example, it's generating an image. That's not an assertion. So then, like, well, it's hard to say it's not factual. And sometimes the things it says, uh, it doesn't matter whether they're factual. My favorite example of that is earlier this year, 1-800-Flowers created a bot called MomVerse on Mother's Day, which when you ordered flowers for your mom, you could ask it to generate a limerick or a haiku or a little song for your mom. And of course, then, you know, facts and truth don't matter. It's just a sort of a creative output and you could hit regenerate or not use it or it doesn't matter. There, the goal is to be creative. But if you are, for example, a bank or, or let's say an insurance company and you're answering your customers' questions about the terms of their policy that they hold with you, you don't want to be creative. You want to be consistent, predictable, and boring and factual. That is extremely important. And for those applications, generative AI is absolutely not ready, should not be deployed, and is dangerous to deploy at this point. It is appropriate only for those situations where being approximately true or sort of true or, or maybe truth doesn't even matter, and there are applications like that, uh, that's where it's appropriate for the customer experience itself or the employee experience for that matter. Although I think the standards are a little bit different for employee experiences. And then behind that is the work that employees do for serving end customers, including CX professionals and others, contact center professionals, uh, software developers, etc. And there, I think it's a very different ballgame uh, in terms of what is appropriate. Yeah. And it also makes sense when we're trying to bring in the human element into customer experiences, there's a range of ways you could do that as well. So it still allows a lot of space for Gen AI to be creative and to deliver unique experiences to customers. So what you're describing is a range of possibilities in the customer experience and then a range of possibilities to help deliver those customer experiences. Now the question is how? We don't even know all the ways we could apply Gen AI. So how do we go about determining how to improve CX using Gen AI? So there are lots of different areas where it applies today. And I think, as you said in your introduction, Angelina, you know, my, my coverage is of experience design for emerging technologies. And part of what's unique about that is that you need to understand a little bit better how they work in order to think strategically about them. And that's especially true of generative AI because it's changing so quickly. You know, that the velocity of change and the magnitude of change uh, and the implications are so huge that it's not enough to just listen to either what anyone in the media or other firms or consultants are saying. Because if you just listen to what we're saying about what the application should be, you're going to be behind the curve. You need to understand upstream a little bit what's happening behind the curtain. And I don't mean, you know, under the hood in the sense of, well, what are the differences between GPT 3.5 and GPT 4? No, that's not what I mean. I just mean understanding the principles of what's going on. You know, these ideas of autocompletion or why it appears to be creative sometimes. There's a, this, this fascinating notion of temperature that we can come back to a little later on, if you'd like, that has to do with that, that perception of creativity. So I, I say all that as context for introducing, I'd say, the, the broad areas where it's applicable. One is really obvious, just answering questions right? You ask a question, you get an answer. That's sort of the simple, obvious thing. Another one is summarizing long-form content, which is also something that Genova AI is quite helpful at. Another is extracting insights from long-form content or multiple sources of long-form content. Another is clustering bits of content. So I'm introducing these as kind of a, a layer that is a little more specific than just, you know, hey, there's a corpus and a model and, you know, those, those technical terms, but not quite as specific as the particular tasks that CX pros have 
because those things apply to many areas. So to give you an example, content summarization. Here are some areas where it's useful. If you are uh, working on customer feedback management or voice the customer program, or you're doing user research and you have long qualitative in-depth research interviews, or even if you're, say, working in the contact center, which is certainly adjacent to customer experience and by some definitions part of it, you need to summarize the interactions you've had with a customer over the course of a call. All of these are areas where you have long-form content that is unstructured, so-called unstructured, it's in natural language, and therefore where summarization is extremely helpful. So those are, those are various areas. And then the same is true for insights extraction or clustering, which is useful also in several of those areas. For example, user interviews, but then also let's say you're doing a workshop where you're starting with user research, but then you're doing an ideation process with colleagues on how to address a need that you've uncovered through your discovery research. Well, that ideation process itself can be helped by using Genova AI to then look at, you know, say those hundreds of stickies that you've generated, either digitally or physically, contain a bunch of content that somebody now needs to cluster, which is a little tedious. And Genova AI can do that quite effectively. You can try it with the publicly available tools, but there are also tools from vendors now that are beginning to enable exactly that, where you can have a bunch of stickies, for example, in some of the virtual whiteboarding tools and just select them all and say cluster and blam, they're clustered. It may not be a perfect clustering, but it's a starting point, which you can then work with and edit and modify and refine. And I think that's a really important point about this application and every application of generative AI, which is that it is not there to replace human work, but to augment and assist and take away some of the more tedious aspects of human work. It's a little bit like when you hire a junior employee who's really smart and gets things done really fast. Like you give them an assignment you think will take a week and it's done in an afternoon. It's amazing. But sometimes they're a little unreliable. They, they mean well, but might go a little bit off the tracks because of lack of experience. And But that's okay because you're not putting them directly in front of customers yet, as I was saying a few minutes ago. You're using them a little bit in the back room and they're really amplifying your productivity and really helping the company, helping the organization. But in collaboration with you and your critical thinking, your judgment, as a professional in working with AI, not being replaced by AI. Does that make sense? Yeah, for definite. And I think that the concerns I think we saw maybe earlier in the year of it's going to replace people's jobs or we're going to fire copywriters, we're going to do all of these kind of wonderful things because everything will be automated. You can see how those things aren't. Maybe they're coming true in some places, but the sensible approach seems very much to be as you described. And I like that concept of treated as a junior employee. You wouldn't just turn an intern loose and say, hey, go write all the copy for our website. You'd maybe proof it. You'd maybe have an editor check it before you went live with that. Yes, exactly. You know, there's the tagline that's sometimes used of, you know, vet it and edit. And sometimes it's spoken as, you know, vet it and edit and take credit. I don't know about that third part. That's <laughs> taking credit is a separate thing, but certainly definitely vet it first and then edit. And that is true across many, many of these applications of, of generative AI. So it seems like the opportunities at the moment then are, would accelerating be the right word, like compressing tasks from a CX professional's point of view, reuse research, design tasks? Well, yes, yes. And, and I think that it's important to yeah recognize that. But then also, I think that then sort of begs the question of what do you do with this time savings? Do you just get a whole bunch more of the same thing done faster? That is one approach. But I think a more strategic approach and a more differentiating approach that really leads to, to growth is thinking about not just doing more of the same faster, but freeing up time to do more creative, more ambitious things so that the people who have that professional judgment, whether they are you know, designers or researchers 
or customer feedback management professionals, any of those roles are now going to be able to, having been freed up from some of those tedious tasks, exercise their critical thinking and their creativity in ways that will be more, first of all, just more satisfying to them as employees and making their jobs more enjoyable, but in an area that has much even more impact, actually making a bigger difference to the customer experience, to serving customers better, and in some cases to serving employees better, because many of those things apply in a very, very similar way. So I think that is what is going to be truly differentiating, not just, you know, more and faster, but better also, and maybe vastly better with vastly more creativity and sort of new, new ways of discovering how an experience can be higher quality, thanks to the freeing up of bandwidth, human bandwidth, thanks to the elimination of some of these tedious tasks. I don't want to make it sound entirely rosy, though, like, you know, there are certainly risks in this and that are that it's important to take into account but there's the potential for really differentiating uses that will drive growth and and really improve customer experiences for sure so you bring up risks we looked at privacy as a key risk like where it ingests data from the kind of inferences it might be making protected personal information etc but there are a bunch of other risks we need to care about as well aren't there so what have you seen in terms of like where this can go wrong Well, one risk, first of all, is the risk of bias. There's this misconception that generative AI is biased. It is not. However, the content it is trained on, known as the corpus, can contain bias. So the algorithms themselves are not biased, but it is garbage in, garbage out, or bias in, bias out. And so in the case of, for example, some of the image generators, that's a classic and easy example to understand. If you try any of the image generators, these are the system, the services where you type in a prompt and you get an image that the prompt described. A good experiment to do that plays on stereotypes is kind of a test, and I've tried this myself, is ask for an image that represents a doctor and a nurse. And you will find with a lot of those services that the doctor is a man, the nurse is a woman. Why? Because we think that's right or appropriate? No. Because Genova AI is biased? No. Because the collection of images that it was trained on has historically contained more men as doctors and more women as nurses. That is an example of bias in the corpus, in the training content, that then is reflected into the output. And it's in the human content. It's because humans and human history has contained that bias. So that is one danger. And, and you can think of that you know, across you know, gender, ethnicity, and all sorts of areas. And some of the services out there are doing a good job of eliminating those kinds of biases, or at least reducing them. I think maybe eliminating is too too strong a word, but they're working hard. And others have been, frankly, kind of casual, too casual about it, which has implications in terms of what is appropriate that a business might want to uh, risk its uses of generative AI on. So I'd say bias is one of those big risks. Another is privacy, as you say, Martin, and that comes into play in several places. One is the material that's in the training content. If that contains personally identifying information, that's risky. If it contains images in which people's faces are visible, for example, without their permission, that can be risky. Another area where there are privacy issues and confidentiality issues is in what you provide as input to the generative AI when you're interacting with it. So I think a lot of people have heard about the famous situation a few months ago when some Samsung employees entered some confidential information into ChatGPT, which is not wise because you know, OpenAI is very transparent about that fact. When you go to the homepage, it's a research project. So they reserve the right to look at anything you enter. There's nothing sneaky going on, but that just means that, you know, use it for fun or for work for that matter, but just don't enter anything confidential. So yes, privacy is definitely a concern and bias. And then I would say one of the other big risks is inaccuracy, which is sometimes known as 
hallucination or coherent nonsense. I mean, I think maybe it's helpful to use just the more precise and simple term inaccuracy. It's just sometimes inaccurate. There are errors of fact, not most of the time, but sometimes. And the problem is that when they do occur, generative AI systems tend to assert things with a tone, a language tone, I mean, that comes across as very, very confident. That may seem like a small thing, but as human beings, we tend to, in interacting with each other, when we don't know what the other person is talking about for sure, and that's why we're asking them a question, is because we need assistance or help with something. How do we ascertain whether they're telling the truth or not? Well, often we use how fluently they speak about the topic as kind of a proxy for whether they're reliably accurate. The problem is that systems like ChatGPT are amazingly fluent. I mean, if you've interacted with ChatGPT, I find that the way it writes is better than most humans I know in terms of fluency. A little bit monotone sometimes, but, but yeah, it's a better writer. And therefore, it tends to inspire confidence, including when it's completely off the mark in terms of the facts. And so that is a big risk, too. I'd say those are probably the three biggest risks. Another one that is sometimes brought up is known as explainability, which is a little bit trickier to understand, but I think is important. And it is due to the fact that generative AI is based on something called a neural network, which is basically a way of creating software that is, is similar to the way the nervous system works, that is inspired by that, as opposed to old-fashioned approaches to AI that were more rules-based, for example, for diagnosing disease. If this symptom and that symptom and that symptom, then probably this disease. That's not at all the way generative AI works. It's just probabilistically completing strings of words uh, or other kinds of tokens. And so when you ask it why, it usually cannot at all explain. And even if you try to pop the hood and you're an extremely technical, super competent AI researcher, you can't. It's, it's not that, oh, you know, coders can tell. They cannot either. This is called the explainability problem. And there are some efforts to remedy it, but they're very, very early days. And Candidly, uh, I am not optimistic. I think the nature of this technology is that explaining itself is just not what it does. Now, on the bright side, uh, or I think in a way, I don't know, maybe bright side is not the right word, but I think it's appropriate to recognize that, let's set an AI aside for a moment. When we interact as colleagues, we can't always explain our conclusions. We can't always come up with the reasons why we're recommending a particular thing. When challenged, we do tend to come up with something, but it's a little bit of an after-the-fact justification sometimes, you know. Oh, well, uh, we feel obligated to have a rational basis for our recommendations. But the truth is, we rely on what we experience as intuition, or what we call intuition, or instinct, or a gut feeling. And, you know, I think there is likely a very scientific basis for that, a neurological one that has to do with conclusions that emerge from unconscious processes that are happening inside of our brain. They're very similar to those happening and the neural networks that, that underlie generative AI. I think too, there's an additional amount of creativity that you can use to get gen AI to sort of explain itself. So for example, I had a lot of open responses on a survey, thousands of responses. I asked gen AI to sort it into themes. And then I realized I needed it to show me which themes each quote went into. So I asked it to sort the quotes to themes and describe the themes. And I just kept asking it questions until it filled it out more and more. And I got a clearer picture. It takes time to learn the prompts and get the prompts right. And it takes time to paint the full picture and you have to be creative. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. certainly isn't necessarily less thinking on the user's part, but it's faster mm -hmm. yes. generation of the result. Yeah. And Angelina, that's actually a useful distinction you're drawing because what you're talking about is content that you put into the prompt or what's known as the context sometimes, the, the prompt plus anything additional. In other words, it's not in the corpus that the model was trained on. It's what you're entering into the context. And therefore, 
it is more dynamically accessible and it is possible for it to do something that is closer to something you could call explanation Mm -hmm. than if it's explaining something that it's drawing from the corpus. Got it. So you having that conversation with the model as a back office function analyzing a survey, it's probably okay. But I think the way David talks about it, you can say this is one of the things I found the most difficult thing to explain to lay people when you try to ex- make them understand how the thing works is it's not an if-then model. It's it's not transparent. It's not revealing how it's making decisions. So we put that in front of customers and say, we're going to make credit scoring decisions or we're going to make medical care decisions. There's a serious risk right now about this kind of thing. Very so much I think so. the way you're talking about it, David, is absolutely correct. Yeah, and I think it's helpful to look at maybe two extremes. Like if you are Spotify and you're thinking about using AI to recommend the next track, that's an extremely low risk decision, right? Because if there's a track and I don't like it, I just can hit thumbs down or next, no big deal. But if you're using AI to recommend to a cardiac surgeon what the appropriate procedure is, you absolutely do not want that surgeon to just do whatever the AI says, or worse, a robot to just do whatever the AI says. You want critical human judgment to be part of that decision process. Those are two radically, radically different applications. One thing that I think is really valuable to understand and that maybe we can go back to for a moment is this notion of creativity. The fact that when people interact with systems like ChatGPT, sometimes it feels like the system is being a little creative. You know, very unlike what we're used to with software, where it's predictable, always the same answer. But no, you ask the same question three times in a row and you get different answers. And what's going on there is really fascinating. We've all heard, and I've even said in this conversation, that ChatGPT and systems like it are picking the most probable next word in completing the sentence. But that's not exactly entirely true. In reality, what's going on is that it's sometimes picking the most probable next word, but sometimes it's the second most probable or the third most probable. What determines that is random. In other words, it's kind of flipping randomly between the first most probable, second most probable, etc. And how random, in other words, does it always pick just the first or second, or first, second, third, first, second, third, fourth? That range is determined by a parameter called temperature. Now, this may sound very in the weeds, but it is fascinating in terms of thinking about human creativity as well, and very important, I think, to understand what's going on. What the temperature parameter does, if you set it to zero, and by the way, you can play with this yourself. If you just go to Google OpenAI Playground, and you'll land on a website where you can try it out. There's a little slider in the upper right, which you can move from zero to a higher value. So no API used, no programming required. You can just play around with it, hence the name Playground. And if you set it to zero, you'll find it is completely predictable, always the same answer to a question, and quite boring. But of course, there are some business applications where boring is appropriate. You don't want creativity. As you move that slider to the right, though, you have a wider aperture of the freedom you're giving it to pick less probable completions. And therefore, it starts making connections between more distant concepts, or at least that's what it appears to be doing as you're reading what it says. And as it becomes broader and broader in those connections, you begin to feel like it's being more creative, maybe generating some insights and things you hadn't thought of, some things that are not so boring and predictable. Now, of course, if you push it too far, it starts feeling a little crazy. So there's kind of the sweet spot that's just creative enough, but not too creative. And even where that sweet spot is depends on what your purpose is, of course, as I was saying. Sometimes you want it to be boring. Sometimes you don't want it to be boring. So it's called temperature. One person I've spoken with about this, I thought had a funny (laughs) rejoinder. He said uh, he calls it the psychedelic parameter uh, (laughs) because it is kind of generating these unlikely completions that can be insightful, but if taken too far, can just seem kind of crazy and nonsensical. And I think it's interesting to 
observe the fact that we as humans, forget about AI for a moment, when we're in a workshop, say, and we want people to be creative, we try to loosen up our thinking a little bit through icebreakers and games, things that, for example, you know, anybody who's done a design workshop is familiar with the exercise of the worst possible idea. Before you start ideating, think about like, what would be a terrible way to solve this problem? And that's really freeing. It gets people's creative juices flowing and then often tends to lead after some laughter into some really good productive ideas. And so I think that's kind of an illustration of how the temperature parameter applies in human creativity. Though, you know, human creativity is much more uh, profound than Gen AI creativity. I think it is fair to call it a kind of shallow creativity. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that we, we talked about this last time you came on talking about use cases for design for Gen AI, about that idea of using it as a as a sounding board, as a kind of left field inspirational thing. Mm -hmm. So that's something we can do now with ChatGPT. As we begin to see these large language models embedded into platforms and solutions or trying to apply them into some of the stuff we talked about earlier on, like actually creating content for your customers or doing research, increasingly vendors are going to be providing this kind of software what should we be asking them? What, what are the critical questions we really need to ask the vendors to make sure we're not exposing ourselves to the risks and the dangers we talked about? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right, Martin. Um, I mean, all of the technology providers pretty much are coming out with messaging, at least, about how they are adding a generative AI into their products. But there are some big differences in how real it is. In some cases, it's mostly messaging. In some cases, it's very real, and they are, in fact, implementing it. And therefore, it's important to be a little more demanding and have a little bit more of a show-me attitude and not just trust the marketing materials and make sure that you're not dealing with just either fluff or things that are not really differentiating at all. There are things that pretty much any vendor could do very rapidly. Another one is to be very careful about security and security vulnerabilities and some of the privacy things we just discussed. Ask for specifics on how they're handling data that is submitted and on also the security and intellectual property issues around the model as it was used. You know, for example, on that front, going back to image generators that we talked about a little bit, a lot of people have heard about DALI and Stable Diffusion and Midjourney and Adobe Firefly. Interestingly, though, for example, Adobe Firefly is trained on 300 million images that are Adobe stock images, plus some public domain images, where there are no intellectual property issues, whereas in contrast, Stable Diffusion was trained on images that are largely from Getty Images without any licensing. And therefore, you know, Getty Images right now is suing Stable Diffusion for $1.8 trillion with a T. Uh, and for most businesses, that is not acceptable risk. So that is another thing to be careful about in, in probing about those, those security issues. Another is just making sure that whatever approach they're using is going to be really adaptable very quickly to the changing technologies. As models change, for example, there are increasingly applications that use smaller models, uh, faster models. You want to make sure that your vendor is not locked into one or the other and will be able to adapt quickly. And then, you know, I think one of the biggest ones is that right now, a lot of the technology providers are offering some of these features for free. You know, come on, just play with these things. But eventually, that's going to have to change because one of the things about generative AI is that it is quite expensive. It's expensive computationally, meaning it just takes a lot of computational power compared to many other things. But therefore, those costs have to be passed on to some extent to customers. And right now, a lot of the vendors are just eating the costs as they're experimenting, learning, completely understandable, and, and trying to roll things out and get people to try them. But they're going to have to introduce pricing that recognizes the real cost of, of using these systems. But it is absolutely appropriate to, not just appropriate, but important to start experimenting, learning, 
and using these things in a confident but also careful, prudent way because of all these factors that I just mentioned. David, thanks so much for joining again and lending your wisdom on generative AI. Oh, it was my pleasure. Uh, there's a lot of potential there. Uh, it's very exciting. Also, a little scary in some ways, and people are right to have both of those feelings. You know, I disagree with people who say it's all just so exciting, but also with people who call it, you know, like it's a doomsday scenario. And I think there's a real responsibility CX professionals have, you know, to take the bull by the horns and really see this as an opportunity, but also a responsibility to make sure that these applications of generative AI are human-centric and actually respect a lot of these ethical uh, issues that we've talked about and some of the principles of good human-centered design. And we're recording this on the day that the uh, Bletchley Park AI Summit is happening and Elon's going to be live uh, on yes. TV this afternoon telling us who <laughs> yes. knows what. So hopefully exactly. some good will come yes. out of all of that. The Bletchley of all places. Amazing. Yeah. And listeners, actually, you can read more of David's vendor coverage on his blog. If you go to Forrester.com and look him up, we'll include a couple links in our show notes. And the report we were referencing is Generative AI Essentials for CX Leaders. Until next time. And thank you to producers Ellie and Julia, without whom none of this would happen. If you want to get in touch, email us at cxcast at forester.com. As always, you can find us at forester.com or on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like and subscribe and tune in next time for more CX Insights. And thank you to producers Ellie and Julia, without whom none of this would happen. If you want to get in touch, email us at cxcast at And as always, you can find us at forrester.com or on your favorite podcast platform. So don't forget to like, subscribe, and tune in next time for more CX Insights.